welcome to this um, next series of Cannabis is a Good Neighbor podcast. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Brian Anderson, Principal of Anderson Porter Design, and we are um, really excited to have Time Ferris with us today, Father Time. I'll give you a little background uh, on you know on this podcast series. We are aiming to talk to the community and and essentially eliminate stigma across across the cannabis industry. We have done podcasts now on security, on banking, on real estate, all to try to remove sort of mysteries and stigmas around around the cannabis space. Time and I go way back. Um, time probably what 2016, 2017, somewhere in that ballpark. At least, maybe even a little earlier. Was it 2015? Maybe 2016. That sounds right. 2016. Uh, so time has had a deep, deep career, and we'll, we'll get into that in terms of his background, where he's come from. We overlapped. Uh, time was a customer of, of Anderson Porter Design through companies that he was working for. So has a deep background in the cannabis space, and was I guess relevant here to to why cannabis is a good neighbor. Uh, time presented at Nikan Albany now, what, last month or so. And I was really blown away time by your presentation. The, the story of the LGBTQ community uh, that resonated with me was, was something I thought we want to bring to this podcast. I was blown away by, by your style, by your presentation, and by the content about, about you know, reminding us as a community sort of where we come from. So with that, I am pleased to introduce time. Ferris, um, Time, give us, um, introduce yourself. Sure. So Time Ferris, I'm currently the founder and CEO for Pantheon Collective LLC. Uh, we are preparing for licensing out here in the state of New York for what New York is calling a micro business license. So it will be a full cultivation seed to sale, um, as well as adding some additional layers to it. So we're, we're looking at this from a perspective of not just um, the adult use cannabis plant, not just um, that one genus, but about cannabis as a, as a general plant that is out there and how it benefits. So coming from it from both um, a, a consumption perspective, but also really looking at industrial hemp applications and, and things of that nature, uh, which is really exciting because just this past month we had uh, hemp, several hemp building materials get added to the buildings code lists that were acceptable in the United States. Um, so that's really cool. And, and really all the way around, it's about building a, a lifestyle brand. So this is more than just, you know, cannabis isn't about just smoking reefer in your back closet, um, like we would think before, but it is a largely a, a medicine that is utilized in many individuals daily lives. I use it myself. Um, it helps for my depression and anxiety, as well as it helps offset a lot of the reactions of my HIV meds that I take on a daily basis. Before I got into cannabis, I started off in the corporate world. Um, you know, my with a name like Time, you can probably guess I had hippie parents that were also carnies. So they were in the carnival and they, they left the carnival world when I was born and brought us in. And, you know, my, my parents consumed cannabis. My grandparents on my mother's side consumed cannabis. My grandparents on my father's side probably should have consumed cannabis. So when I was growing up, my way of rebelling 
being in a, in a very liberal family was to be a little bit more conservative. So I would, I was that kid in high school that was wagging my finger at my friends saying, you're going straight to Hades for, for smoking that cigarette or smoking that joint or whatever else it was. Um, and became like a really big rules guy. And like I said, went into uh, the corporate world originally in fashion and retail. Um, I ran U.S. expansion for companies like uh, Diesel, BCBG, um, H&M, uh, worked for a stint with Equinox Fitness. And then back in about 2008, 2009, um, my dear friend, Allison Ledden, who I had worked with um, with e- at Equinox Fitness, she was a spa manager there when I was a regional manager, uh, approached me that her dear friend, Jan Cole, and uh, Jan's late husband, LJ Johnson, were starting a cannabis business. Uh, it was the first medical program to be rolled out in Colorado. Um, so I started with that with just some simple like merchandising um, assistance and consulting, kind of helping develop that space. And then the second wave of medical licenses happened for Colorado. And so for those that aren't familiar with the Colorado rollout of cannabis, so we started with a, a a medical marijuana program 2.0 or 1.0 rather, uh, which was really more free formed. Um, so we had a small grow, we had our shop in Boulder, Colorado, and we would a good chunk of our day was just spent in a small room sampling products that were coming in from all of these farmers up in the mountains. Um, so that's just how it was. And the second program of medical that Colorado rolled out is where I got brought in full time. And that was because they started the the more stringent rules and regs, the, the structuring that has really become the cookie cutter template across the United States since to get all of these other medical. And eventually, like with Colorado, we had we were through there for Amendment 64 to pass being the first adult use. I still swear that we beat Washington by 37 seconds. Um, so we went through all of that and I really found my home in there with helping create a more structured environment, helping figure out that fine line between being, um, organically growing and creative and, and still to the heart of what the, the, the OG cannabis culture was creating. Um, but stepping it up to modern times to know that, you know, cannabis is a big piece of public opinion. There is very few people that don't have an opinion on it that are out there. Um, so that's where I kind of brought my home in to that. And since then I've been consulting and working for other companies. I have collectively been at the helm to collect over 23 licenses in five states, California, Colorado, Massachusetts, Vermont, uh, Missouri, and now I'm excited to finally, after all these years, almost two decades, be bringing it back to my home state of upstate New York. That is really cool. So you've had this sort of career path and journey that uh, took you through early state adopters, i.e. Colorado, as you just described. and had a step in a number of other states. We met here in Massachusetts when you were working for organizations here, two different organizations. So what would be really interesting to hear is a sort of bit about your perspective relative to that law in those states. So how did how did necessarily Massachusetts differ from Colorado? Not every step in between maybe, but to give to give our audience an understanding of maybe 
your perspective as an operator, as, a, as an employee, as, a, as working in this industry, how things maybe be, would be different from between Colorado and Massachusetts would be interesting and how you envision that um, for, for New York or how you think New York may evolve from that, from that history. Sure. Well, I feel as though it, it's, it's always unfortunate as I go into a new state that's bringing it out because for whatever reason, we often decide not to learn from the hiccups of our brothers and sisters in other states. Um, it seems to be that everybody wants to start off at the same phase one spot instead of being able to jump their, their market forward more by just picking up where somebody else has left off. Um, and as a result of that, we get um, a, a slew of rules and regs that come through that we know are going to disappear within the first couple of years of being open, but you just have so to go to those. I'm sorry? So what, what would some of those be? Oh, I mean, there's the, the marketing and advertising regs often fluctuate considerably. Um, a lot of stuff when we're talking about build out, the security regs that are around yep. those will yep. often change. And those I see change dramatically on both sides. Either they they loosen up and fall into lockstep with the majority of other states. Some expedite those to a significantly higher level um, in order to help fight public stigma. You know, it's it's much easier to get people to feel comfortable with it if they feel like the man is is watching tightly over their corner. And as an industry, we're generally just happy to accommodate that, you know, whatever so it you, is that it takes. Would you see Massachusetts as in terms of, let's just pick one of those security, for example, do you think Massachusetts did things differently from Colorado? I've got my opinions. I've toured plenty of Denver dispensaries, um, you know, as opposed to what we do here in Massachusetts. On the security side, I definitely have to say that what happened in Massachusetts, I, I thought was, there was much more detail put into it than what we had in Colorado. The security side in Colorado, we were definitely significantly looser. We didn't have the restrictions of, you know, access points uh, being one. And and I do give, I give the majority of props when I look at other states to Colorado. Um, but there's definitely areas that I think that Massachusetts led a better way um, because some of these security protocols that went in, like when we're talking about access and limiting access, um, yep. definitely yep. were better overall business decisions too. You know, like when Brian, when we were working on build out before it was, you know, really paying attention to that flow and who really needs to be over here and who doesn't need to be over here. Um, and, and really, uh, influencing those workflows for that. Yes, this came up. Uh, I was on a call yesterday with uh, operators in California who were entering the retail market in California. We're very concerned about um, burglary and theft. It's up in the Northwest, in the Pacific Northwest. Oregon and, and Washington are having uh, making news with a lot of uh, smashing grabs. People looking for cash, understanding that there's a lot of cash in these premises, not coming in and looking for product. It's really interesting. People aren't doing these smashing grabs to get in and steal product. They're, because these stores are largely empty boxes on the shelves. There's no live product on the floor. So, but looking for cash. And I've noticed this, you know, there's a deep difference among states about how security is rolled out. You go to San Francisco and you can just walk around the counter and stand next to the bud tender. There's usually very little barriers. You know, different states roll these roll programs out in different ways. So I thought I appreciate your perspective for sort of, you know, working in different states and sort of seeing how that, how that flows. 
Um, are there are there things about New York then that um, so New York as an example in terms of the evolution of cannabis from my perspective regulatory uh, has adopted I'll use the technical term here 21 CFR Part 117 which is the Food Safety and Modernization Act otherwise known as CGMP or Current Good Manufacturing Practices so New York made that and you mentioned hemp. New York passed the hemp, you know, adopted the hemp law. Hemp, you know, uh, farmers in New York State uh, jumped on that bandwagon in 2018, and hemp made that a, a, a priority. Uh, that we talk about food safety and modernization. That's that's the the code of federal regulations, and I think that's a good thing for cannabis. And New York has adopted that now in the in their cannabis regs. When I think of the New York market and what how what things that it's doing differently, you know, there's 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 three levels with that. One is painful. We are, we're, as a state, we, we're just dragging this out, um, you know, and there's a lot of frustration currently uh, with how things have happened. We still don't have our final rules and regs done. Um, recently, we were told at a meeting with Chris Alexander down in the city that we shouldn't expect to see licenses for general folk until mid-2023 now, um, which is which is rough because we all went into this, you know, the original MRTA, Marijuana Regulation Taxation Act, that was passed here in New York in March of 2021, um, stated that the program would be up and running within a year. Well, then we get into 2022 and we were told, we'll be in early spring, it'll be in late spring, it'll be in midsummer, it'll be the beginning of fall. And now we were told 2023. So it makes it really, really hard from a, a business side to plan when your goalposts are being pushed so much further out over and over again. Um, so our our contingencies for our contingencies get pushed and it makes it hard too for fundraising. I mean, uh, we at Pantheon are in the middle of trying to raise 30 million for our project and everybody, these VC groups that we were talking to that were getting excited to get on board with us, all of a sudden had to take a huge step back when they're being told, well, it's going to be at least another year that's on that. Um, so that that part is is cumbersome and, and troublesome to a degree. What's great though is that the two big areas CGMP is definitely one that I, I definitely appreciate that New York is being more forceful in its in its program with wanting that because all that that does as much as it's an annoying hurdle to jump over, it's also preparing us significantly better for the inevitable federal, rollout of decriminalization and legalization, whatever that comes. Um, because there will come a day that we are direct, have direct oversight from FDA, USDA, um, and all these other federal programs as far as what we're doing, how we're producing, how we're reporting, um, all of those pieces. Um, so I think that's really, really important. And then the other side of that that New York is, is a double-edged sword, I think, is that they've decided that to put a tremendous amount of focus on the social justice aspects of rolling out cannabis and divide and devising this this seemingly great social equity program and really making sure to acknowledge that we have communities that have been disproportionately impacted by cannabis prohibition, right? Um, and trying to set a stage to do right by those. Um, the, the other side of that sword, unfortunately though, is that we aren't moving as quickly through our process to get our stores up and open because 
they're taking that time and it's arguable from one individual to the next, whether it's too much time or ample or maybe even not enough to make sure that we're dialing in those aspects that we don't act like a lot of these other states that have social equity programs that at the end of it were just platitudes on paper and not having any actual guts to them um, about helping individuals that, that were affected. So that's a great transition to sort of this, the spark of why I wanted you on this, on this podcast time. You presented in Albany last month at NECAN um, a story that brought it home, sort of what was happening in San Francisco with the AIDS epidemic and what was how cannabis was being uh, introduced to certain, certain individuals. And I don't have the names at the tip of my tongue, but you mentioned a whole number of really seminal figures who fought against the odds, right? To provide compassionate care, to provide care through people to people through the use of the plant, whether that was baking it into brownies and distributing brownies at clinics. That sort of story, I think, has an arc to it, to what you've just talked about in terms of New York State's regulations, right? Think about food manufacturing, right? So I'm an architect. I design these spaces. Today, even the names are changing, right? The name of kitchen, right? Many people still refer to a, a MIP kitchen, a MIP kitchen, mar- marijuana-infused products. It was sort of a transitional name. But as I think about that arc of that story from how cannabis was used in that community and around San Francisco in the 80s and early 90s, right? So to today where we're, we now have CGMP, which is implying that we're doing food manufacturing and people are wearing latex gloves and they're wearing hairnets and beard nets and they've got booties over their factory issued footwear. There's This is a huge leap for the industry and I think one that is worth tying it back and understanding that arc. Absolutely. Um, so to give a, a little bit more more context to that, so like in my presentation and what I think that we're talking about here right now is, you know, it's it's that direct line to, again, the communities disproportionately impacted by cannabis. When in, in the history of the United States, every single time that we have decided to create on a federal level a, a law or an action or a campaign against cannabis it not once has historically been logged to have actually had anything to do with the plant. It is constantly about how to affect communities that have a relationship or have that plant around them. So that takes us back to 1915, some of the first um, anti-cannabis laws that happened out California way, which were really more about fighting against Mexican immigrants that were coming up as a result of uh, the Mexican Revolution. They were coming up here. They were bringing cannabis with them. Cannabis obviously has a very unique aroma and can easily be identified. So it was a way to single those individuals out and try to push them out of these communities that were going in. Fast forward into 1937, we have the first hemp marijuana um, tax law. Uh, which is probably one of the most disgusting things that we've ever done as a country because it's very, very well documented that it was Hearst, Randolph, and some of these other big guys that were big nylon, big paper, that just invested all this money in during our, our revolutionary... Dow chemicals. Yep. yep. And they invested in one to protect their profits. Well, hemp was getting in the way of that. You know, hemp grows significantly faster than any of these without need for a lot of the the pesticides and stuff that some of these other types of plants are required or the manpower. I mean, there, it's just a plethora of reasons why it was just a, a dirty dog show from the get-go. Um, but they pushed it through so is that we could 
push out and create disenfranchise all of our farmers. You know, yes. hemp was a major cash crop in the U.S. for years leading to before and after the Revolutionary War and up until this time. And then we started bastardizing it and making it so these people that this is the crop that they knew how to grow from their grandfather and their grandfather's grandfather. Now they're they're scrambling to come up with predominantly, at least in my area, either corn or dairy. That's all that they had to to fall back on instead. Uh, then we get into the 70s. And again, it's about um, really attacking people of color. We have the Nixon administration realize that, hey, there can be a lot of money made by filling up prisons and privatizing these. And so that really turned into a, another attack, just like in 1915, going after persons of color. Um, and then come the Reagan administration, they did that again for to fill up our prisons. And then the latter part, um, you know, we were starting the the brink of the HIV AIDS epidemic. We knew that cannabis was helping individuals at this time. And instead of trying to come up with ways to alleviate what were some of the most horrific deaths that individuals had to go through, just very slow, painful, agonizing, both, both visually and internally, we decided to ramp up our war on drugs and, and make it harder for individuals. So when, when we look at the history of cannabis, we definitely have every, everyone's first group, obviously, are, are any groups of, of people of color, the BIPOC community. They are were definitely the, the blunt of these witch hunts um, that we Break did. Put that acronym down for our listeners who don't know what BIPOC is. Uh, sorry, uh, Black Indigenous People of Color. Um, so it's, it's basically a, a, a social term to encompass just about everybody to make sure they're inclusive of individuals that are, are not just typical white ca Caucasian. Um, so we've gone through and they, they're the, the first mark. A lot of people don't know about the, how the farmers were affected. So there's a lot of education that's going on. And unfortunately, a lot of people, which, which floors me, as a person that is LGBT, um, that, you know, I guess I just get sucked into the safety of my own space and thinking, well, everybody's got to know our history. And they don't. And it's been extremely surprising. It's been super eye-opening. Um, right now, my company, Pantheon Collective, and myself, we've been working with Senator Jeremy Cooney, um, who is senator for uh, Rochester, New York. Uh, we have two bills that we're working on pushing with him, uh, S7603 and S7517A. Um, and the purpose of these is to, in the existing social equity program here in New York State, make sure that we get LGBTQIA plus individuals on that list. Currently, our state recognizes the BIPOC community. They recognize our distressed farmers. They've added women and service disabled veterans which yeah. for me don't have as direct a line because there isn't that obviously it's arguable that almost everybody is affected when they can't have cannabis introduced. Um, but that I feel like those individuals, it's more about the social justice writing of what we should be doing is that there are significantly innumerable levels of minority groups that we have here in the U S right. And to dismiss any portion of that is just wrong and goes against the very fiber of what any of these social equity programs are trying to accomplish at the end of the day. Uh, so they've included those individuals. 
Um, I still stand firmly too with right now it's, you have to have been a service disabled veteran. Um, and I really feel like it should be open to all persons with disabilities, all veterans. Um, and we've got to get LGBT into that mix. Um, so Senate bill 7517 a, um, takes care of the gender identity portion. Um, that was the first of the two bills that the senator put forward, and that was to add transgender and non-binary individual protections into social equity, uh, which is extremely important. Um, and then we came behind because, like I said, I've been around the, the country doing this, and never before has a state, usually all of these other social equity programs are are more focused safely, I think, by these by these rulemakers and legislators by just saying it's like economically depravished or, right. or things of that right. nature. Right. Where New York has decided to name the groups to come out and say, you know what, this is for a correction to everything that we've done to people of color. This is for a correction for everything that we did to those farmers back then, all of those groups. So you know, this was the first time that I felt like I, I needed to step up and say, hey, if we're going to start naming names and we're going to do this right, then we need to make sure that LGBTQ plus is added into that mix. For one, we wouldn't be sitting here today having this conversation if it weren't for the LGBT community. If it wasn't for Prop W, Dennis Perrin, um, getting the first medical marijuana passed out in California, which was was run by people like Perrin, Harvey Milk, um, Brownie Mary, Paul Scott, just to name a few. Um, I mean, it's it's a, a tremendous force in what we've had happen, you know. And it was it was that connection of this very visibly debilitating disease that AIDS was at that point in time, this death sentence that that created the momentum that allowed the dominoes to start dropping like they are today. Um, so it's, it does a great disservice if we're going to discount the, um, the LGBT community, because we need to thank them for that just as much as we need to also be thanking our legacy operators throughout the past, because if they hadn't kept pushing the envelope underground, kept curating plants, developing better strains, then we also wouldn't be where we are. Um, so I think it's important that with any of these social equity programs that we're, we're, we're giving props to those that fought for us. And then again, also making sure that we know that these these rules and regs and laws that we've had federally for years were to persecute people and, and nothing less than that. And when we try to kid ourselves of anything different, we do no justice for what America stands for, I think. That was a very long-winded answer, I think, to your your, your question, but hopefully well, I got it. Well, it was fabulous. So that's really, that's yeah, you, you nailed it. That's the sort of arc of, you know, where do we come from? How do we get here? And how can New York states, this idea of naming names, right, is, is really a step forward. New York is doing some very unique things in its, I don't want to say legislation yet. It hasn't even been, the laws haven't been written yet, but they're moving in a direction that seems to have built on learning from history. And there are, I have followed through my involvement with places like the NCIA, um, RII, the organizations that I'm involved with, um, starting to look at groups like CANRA, which is the um, organization of cannabis legislators. So to belong to CANRA, 
uh, you need to be a state legislator who is passing laws. And, and in interviewing, <clears throat> I haven't interviewed them all, obviously, but um, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Maine, the th- 3M states, and I've happened to have direct calls with on understanding their perspective, what they see as a need. Um, it's interesting to hear from legislators who, you know, have pointed, like Michigan, for example, said, you know, I, looking back, I kind of regret we don't have anything regarding energy in our, in our legislation. There's no, there's nothing in the cannabis legislation that addresses the consumption of energy, right? Let alone uh, protections for people of, you know, of specific groups that have been disaffected, right? So the LGBT community, the BIPOC community, farmers, there's, that doesn't, in very few states. So New York is kind of leading the way in that. Um, they're leading the way and well, Connecticut as well has put uh, CGMP into their legislation. So those are two big check boxes. I think that from a social perspective, how the, how the, the industry of cannabis can affect social lives, right? But also medically. <clears throat> and uh, you think about, you know, eating food products and medical, pro- medical products, which cannabis is, uh, consuming that in the human body has got to be protected at the level of FDA. And energy is another major, uh, major cons- cannabis is a major consumer of energy, water, power, um, and human energy, you know, and human inputs. So all of those, um, they're not all progressing equally, but I, I think there's positive direction in what New York is doing. Well, and I think that when, when you're talking about all those, like, so I'm sure some listeners, when, when they're hearing this parallel that we're, we're talking about social equity, and then we're talking about CGMP and energy, and they're going, well, how, where is that connection more? Like, show us the thread. Um, but I mean, it's about, it's about being open-minded on, on all sides. It's about looking to the past for yes. our corrections and looking to the future for where we need to be. Um, it's correcting injustices that we've had, and it's planning for the vibrant future for our industry. But but it's more than that. Like I keep, I, I sit as the chair for the Mohawk Valley for the Cannabis Association of New York, Canny, and constantly in my monthly meetings that I do with folks, I drive home that what we're standing on right now is is the jump off point for more than just a, a new market to open for cannabis. What we're standing on the edge of is a is a new way for whether it's the New England area or the United States or the world as a whole to look at how we're doing business and doing ethical business. You know, right now we're in a, a time. This is probably my my least favorite time of year when my television is flooded with nothing but political campaigns of just people bashing each other and going back and forth, um, and. You know, one of the big things that are constantly coming up are, are issues like inflation and things like this, that although we like to point fingers, all come down to ethical and moral practices to be had at high level corporate um, companies. You know, it's it's creating a, a new stance to say, you know what, if your base level employee is only squeaking by on minimum wage and you've got a CEO c- coming in over six figures there's a problem with that. There, there is a problem with that. We, it can't be feast and famine for the individuals that are trying to push this. Um, so we can correct that. We can take a look at something like cannabis that consumes so much energy. I mean, 
really, I mean, it's come down a lot back from the good old days when, when I started and everything was just the HPLs. And, you know, now we've got tremendous amounts of LEDs, which have brought all of those those down a lot. Um, but it's still, it, it, it's big. I know in New York, it's a big concern of theirs. They've been trying to push people towards outdoor cultivation here for those that have received conditional applications or conditional licenses rather for either uh, cultivation or production. But it's something that that needs more attention. It, it needs to have that guidance in rules and regs to help the individual be able to jump into this industry and do it in a ethical and conscious way to make sure that we aren't just blowing up our, our carbon footprints like we've done for years. Uh, and bringing that back in. And what better way than a holistic plant to kind of sell that whole pitch with being more more climate change conscious um, with everything that, you know, this is a, a symbolic right now for something that, that can and needs to be much larger for how general commerce manufacturing industry as a whole needs to operate. You know, remembering about the people, remembering about our environment and our climate, um, and then moving into the safety. And then we can have fun with stuff, you know, and, and enjoy our consumption lounges and all of that other good stuff. But if we don't start with a strong foundation like any building, then we will only crumble. And I'm, I think that some of the states that are struggling right now, it's because they didn't put that, that forethought into that. They didn't think first about their people. They didn't think about the various, I mean, we use a lot of water in this industry. We use a lot of electricity. Um, So as much as it's a plant and does good, it's, we, we create a huge hole in our environment around us. Some of us that, that haven't gone through and taken those steps. Um, And it's really, it's frustrating and silly to me sometimes to step back and look at this because individuals that are are headstrong in in their growing methods or or not using some of these energy saving things or or folks that I talk to when I'm consulting and we're talking about their 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 workflow and stuff and they're just like oh well that's just going to cost us too much for right now to go this way well that's your initial cost but if you're planning to be a thriving business and hopefully you know still surviving 5 to 10 years from now that little bit of an extra cost is going to save you ridiculous amounts of money in the end game. So it's, you can do the right thing and still be increasing your profitability at the same time. It doesn't have to be one or the other, which I think a lot of American industry has, has foolishly told itself that it can't be both. There are some very exciting things happening in the state of New York. We're involved, uh, you know, as architects and designers, and there's some groups coming in won't name any names here, but looking at the sort of holistic production of the plant, so the power of the sun, solar, uh, the power of interactions, um, bringing people onto the property within security laws, not necessarily into the security fence zone, but in close to, to sort of understand the history of the plant, understand the ecology of the plant. You know, how does, a, how does, an eight, how does four acre greenhouse displace water? Where does all that water go? that lands on a gutter connected greenhouse, you you know, it's collected underground, Um, you know, how to transform that water back into the environment in a healthy, safe way, right? As opposed to just tight tanking the leachate runoffs, but can you, you know, put that back into a system that enriches the nutrients around the property and benefits the property. So this sort of the cycle of life. And I think there's, there's that expansive level of thinking is, is at play in New York right now. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. Absolutely. And it's, 
you know, I don't think, I don't know that just because of how us as human beings are hardwired anyway, like as humans, we don't like change overall. We, we like to have a comfort level. Um, right. Some of us are, are more open to adding some change into our, but none of us want everything to be completely ripped up. So I think that putting that forethought in a still, we'll say new industry, even though it's been around forever, but coming into a regulated industry is new, that we have the greatest opportunity to fix all of those things. To, to make sure that individuals like yourselves and others that, that we're all coming into this with, with minds that are more open and, and ready to problem solve with how we're doing this, um, both for the optics to our communities, um, because that's always is a, a struggle for a lot of folks is we've, we've had decades and decades and decades of just being brainwashed that touching this plant is going to send you straight to Hades and no hope of heaven. Um, so pushing through that, that we're, we're breaking down those social stigmas We're we're coming at new angles for how to create sustainability, whether it's with our packaging, our building, um, practices or whatever it is and our just our standard growing practices um that i think that too many other industries that we have are so set in their ways that it would have been extremely hard for them to start seeing the light of what we can do with cannabis um now i say that also with the caveat that i certainly hope that some of our bad actors in the industry that are out there certain companies that have just come up as um, you know, they're trying to fight against their leases by saying, well, you shouldn't have signed with us. We were illegal. Um, you know, there's those, those things are happening that I hope don't taint all of the work that everyone has been doing in this industry for so long. Um, and it should just be more of a driving force for all of us to do better, uh, to offset those that tried to come into our industry with that old, dirty money, white dude, conservative uh, corporate way that that America has run for a long time that we've allowed to just run completely awry um, and that we have individuals that can bring that in. Do you have can of tourism as part of your business strategy in New York? Is there a way you mentioned social consumption earlier? I'm not 100 percent familiar with whether New York is going to how quickly they're going to implement or allow social consumption. But I can see can of tourism much in the way that, you know, the wine country, Northern California brings people onto the farm. I know the Hudson Valley fairly well. I have friends up, you know, just south of Albany. And in the summertime, you know, communities publish maps and those maps are full of, you know, they're, they're, you know there's this sort of local neighborhood map where, where they invite people maybe spending, you know, a week in the summer to come to the different farms, right? Come see the, you know, the, the, the goat farm here, the, you know, buy their, buy the cheese or come see the sheep farm over here, buy some things made out of their wool, buy some lamb steaks, right? There's this connection to communities that <clears throat> I think Canada, I don't know how quickly Canada tourism could fit into, could, could fit into that, but it certainly is a bridge to bringing the public in and seeing these beneficial aspects. We're going to come up against the security issues and the, you know, the mandated state, you know, fencing around things and, and whatnot. But so it's not like people are going to be able to walk through the rows of, of cannabis growing on an outdoor farm, but certainly they could see a hemp farm. There's no, no prohibitions about seeing hemp, right? And it pretty much, you know, genetically doesn't look that much different from cannabis. And so is that part of your approach uh, where you're 
where you're going. Absolutely. The, the agritourism is a major component of what we're trying to do, both for, you know, there's, there's the novelty aspect that everyone wants to be like, oh, I just walked past a pot plant. <laughs> um, but there's also the aspects of education, um, of getting people up to our space um, to walk through the indoor facility, to be able to see how things happen, to to have it be a, a training lesson, not only from effects when it's being consumed, but best practices for growing, whether it's for your larger business and seeing how we do things or for your home grow and see how you can adapt pieces of that um, to, you know, be able to have people come through and see all the process piping. I want all of those, those guts of everything that goes on to be very visible and treated like the, the awards that they should be that, you know, it's all of these integral parts that, that make it the magic of cannabis. Right. And then be able to take them into a room and, and share about some of the cannabis history that we just talked about or throw them into an edibles class. Um, you know, a big portion of what we're trying to create here is a, a unifying section where you can come to our facility and experience everything from when you walk in the door and are able to, in the open to the public section, purchase hemp clothing like hoodlum and things of that nature or or pieces that are more culturally impactful, um, CBD-based products that are hemp, all that up there, go into the um, the back section to purchase uh, limited access your adult-use cannabis for however your consumption choice is, um, and then take some time strolling through um, the facility and checking it out so you can see and you know how your product was just grown, you know, so is that you can see that it's not all shady. Um, and then go outside into our, our hemp farm and be able to to pick some some flower to be able to walk amongst the plants, you know. Um, and then our ultimate goal is to add some um, some sort of stay tiny homes into the campus that we're going to be building here, um, so that people can come for a weekend long experience to have hands on. Whether they are another cannabis company that's out there that just wants to you know, see and get a feel and, and learn what our methods are, or if it's just someone that wants to do a, a corporate retreat for their for their team that's just kind of more fun-based and more on, focused on the entertainment side, the, the cultural fun that comes with cannabis or, or whatever that is, and really ultimately showing, like your show says, how cannabis can be a great neighbor, how we are we are all out there. We are, we are your next door neighbor. We are right here. And we aren't as scary and shady as what we've been led to believe for all of these years. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Thanks for the tie-in. <laughs> Big hugs for the tie-in there, Tyne. That was great. Uh, cannabis is a good neighbor. That, thank you. This is this was really fantastic. I think that that's a really neat message. And I appreciate your inputs on that. It's 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 yeah, it's the uplifting side of what this industry does. I want to thank you very much for being my guest today. Um, this is Cannabis is a Good Neighbor podcast. My guest has been Time Ferris of Pantheon Collective. Time, thank you. Thank you, Brian. It was really great. Always a pleasure to chat.